You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. How do I know the will of God for my life? You ever agonized over that question? Who should I marry? Should I marry Mary or should I marry Sue? Where should I live? What job should I take? Should I go into ministry or should I go into a non-ministry related vocation? Should I work here or should I work there? Should I be a doctor or should I be a lawyer? What school should I go to? What course of education should I specialize in? What church should I attend? What ministry should I serve in? Should I buy or should I rent? Should I remain single or should I get married? Which car should I buy? Should I go to the mission field to India or should I go to the mission field to Iraq? What is God's will for my life? Have you ever agonized over those questions? Probably most of us have. We are concerned about what God wills for us. What He is directing us to do, what He wants us to do, how we should serve Him, where we should serve Him, and all of the little details of our lives. And those are big decisions. And they're not decisions that should be made quickly or thoughtlessly. So how do we make them? Well, I wait for a revelation from the Lord. I will look toward the sky and I will wait to see a symbol revealed in a cloud. And I will see eventually the cloud shaped like something and God will speak to me through the sunset or through the sunrise or through the clouds as to what His will for my life is. Or I will wait for that burning in the bosom, provided it wasn't a burrito that I had for lunch. I will wait for that impression that the Lord gives me or that still, small voice. Or I will wait till I wake up in the middle of the night and I'm thinking about something where I have a dream or I see a vision, or I will consult a modern-day prophet. I'll watch Pat Robertson. Because he will certainly say, I know there's somebody out there in TV land right now who's struggling with what the will of God for their life is. And I'm telling you right now, God is saying to me, to you, just do what you're thinking right now. That's God's will. Eventually he'll say something like that, and you'll be sitting there on your couch saying, must be speaking to me. I mean, there's nobody else out there who's struggling with what God's will is for their life, so he must be thinking of me. Or if you're not waiting for a revelation, you'll find a verse. I will scour the Bible and I will find my concordance and I will pull down my concordance and I will look for a word or for a reference or for a phrase that has that in there. Should I marry Mary or should I wed Sue? Well, I grab my concordance and I look through and I can't find Sue's name listed anywhere in there. And I find that Mary was betrothed to Joseph. So of the two, one of them was betrothed. So I will marry Mary. And not Sue, because I find that she was betrothed. So it must be God's will for me to betroth Mary. Ever have anybody tell you, the Lord gave me this verse? The Lord gave me a verse? What is that supposed to mean? The Lord's given me a whole bunch of verses. He gives all of us the same revelation. The Lord gave this to me. I always get nervous when people start talking that way. I know what they mean, but it communicates something terrible. God is speaking to me. And he gave me this verse. 
And so we take a reference of Scripture that may or may not have anything to do with the question, but it has a word or a phrase or something in it, and we leapfrog off of that into making some decision about what God's will is. Or rather than waiting for a revelation or trying to find a reference, maybe you just say, you know what, I really don't care what God's will is for my life. Whatever it is, is probably onerous and burdensome. It's going to be a joyless existence. So I'm just not concerned about what God wants me to do. I really don't care whether He wants me to do this or whether He wants me to do that. I'm just going to make a decision and let the chips fall where they may. And I just don't care whether He agrees with it or likes it or is directing the whole process or what. Is there a better way of making decisions? Is there a better way of discerning the will of God than any of those? You know, I think there is. And I think that we are given some key principles for decision making and discerning the will of God in Acts chapter 1. I want to set the stage with you just for you just in case you weren't here last week. This is immediately after the ascension of our Lord. You remember that Jesus has been appearing to the disciples over a period of 40 days, speaking to them the things concerning himself and of the kingdom, and he has been equipping them because he's about ready to leave them. And then he has reminded them of the promise of the Father, which he has said is not many days from now. It won't be long, and you're going to receive the promise of the Spirit. And now he has left, and as they watched on at the Mount of Olives, they saw him ascend from earth up, and they watched that transpire and see him enveloped into a cloud, and he disappeared out of their sight. And the angels appear and say, what are you looking up into the sky for? Just as he has gone away, he will come again, inferring that now it's they need to get busy with what he's commanded them to do, and that is to be his witnesses. And so that's the scene. The apostles are waiting for the promise of the Spirit. They are standing on the Mount of Olivet, and that's where we pick it up in verse 12. And we're going to see in, in this discussion of what the apostles are doing now in verses 12 through 26, we're going to see them make a very important decision. And the decision is, who is it that should fill the vacancy that Judas has left? Judas has betrayed the Lord. He has committed suicide. And now who is it that we should select to fill that twelfth position? And as we watch them make this decision, and we watch what the apostles did, it's very instructive to us as to what you and I should employ and the things that you and I should do in making decisions. Now, This was supposed to be one message, and there are four principles in this passage, but as I started fleshing this out, I realized this, we could, I had two choices. We could either be real shallow and deal with it all in one Sunday, or we could be a bit more substantive and deal with it in two Sundays. So I chose substance over shallowness, so we're going to split it up and deal with it over the course of two Sundays as opposed to one Sunday, and I'm assuming that that sets well with you. If it doesn't, then just don't come back for the rest of it next week. So we will deal with the four of them. We're going to take two today. The first one is in verses 12 through verse 14. As we see the apostles trying to discern God's will, we see them do this. We see them wait on God in prayer. Look at verse 12. They're on the Mount of Olives. And so Luke says, They returned to Jerusalem from the Mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. A Sabbath day's journey was a way of referring to a a set distance of 2,000 cubits. It was a distance of travel that was set by the rabbis in the rabbinical law. It's not laid down in the Old Testament. And it was what they said, you, you, can, you can travel up to this amount of distance on the Sabbath without violating the Sabbath. One of those man-made traditions. 2,000 cubits was about a half a mile to three-quarters of a mile, somewhere in there. So they're just outside the city of Jerusalem. It's not on the Sabbath. It's on a Thursday. They return to the city of Jerusalem, which Luke says basically that they're outside about 2,000 cubits away. 
They come back into Jerusalem. Verse 13, when they had entered the city, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. I don't know if this was the upper room where Jesus enjoyed the last Passover meal with the disciples. I don't know if this is the the upper room where He had appeared to the disciples after His resurrection. But they are staying in a in a house that has an upper room, which was a usually a large area where a lot of people could meet. And it was set apart sound-wise and distance-wise from the hustle and bustle of the servants. Uh, it's an upper room that's set apart. And they're there because they're going to be praying. Now, who's there? Well, Luke gives us a list of the disciples. Look at verse 13. That is, and these are the people who returned and went to the upper room, Peter and John and James, Andrew, Philip, and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. Now do you notice something about that list? It's really just like every other list of the disciples that you find in the New Testament, but there's something unique about this list. Can you guess what it is? There's only 11. Judas is missing. I say, why does Luke include the list of the disciples who went up into the room? He's doing it for two reasons. The first reason is this. He's wanting to show to us that there are 11. There's one missing. And that's significant. So he lists them. And as you read through them, you get this feeling like there should be 12, but there's only 11. There's one missing. And he's highlighting that need. He's highlighting the fact that they're one short of, of really where they should be and where they need to be. The second reason is because he's about ready to set up and he's setting up for us everything that follows, which is the choosing of the twelfth apostle. Matthias or Justice. They have those, those two that they're choosing between. And so Luke gives us the list because he wants us to understand there's a need to fill the vacancy and he wants us to understand why it is that they do what they do. It arises out of that need. So look what they do. He gives us the list that ends with verse 13. They were all with one mind were continually devoting themselves to prayer along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with His brothers. There's a group of them that have met in the upper room and they're doing something. They are continually devoting themselves to prayer. One of the essential characteristics of effective decision making and discerning the will of God is that you and I wait on God in prayer. And that's what they did. And Luke here says that they were in the upper room continually devoting themselves to prayer. Now, in Luke chapter 24, Luke says that after the ascension, they were in the temple daily praising God. There's two things that the early disciples did. They were in the temple daily praising publicly, and they were continually meeting privately for prayer. Public praise and private prayer. That's what the disciples were doing. They were in the temple continually day by day. And this is something that they did even after the Spirit came. In Acts chapter 2, verse 46, if you'll turn over there, you see it says that day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house. Where were they at every day? In the temple and in each other's houses. Daily. You want to know the secrets of the early church's power? One of them is their worship habits. So they, didn't view, they didn't view church as something that you do or don't do depending on what the weather's like. They didn't view church as something that you try and cram into your schedule. These people met together daily. They were with each other daily. There's not a day that went by that they were not in contact with the brethren. In the temple daily, meeting house to house, breaking bread privately daily. Now I want you to notice two things that Luke tells us about their prayer. First of all, it was 
unified prayer. They were of one mind. Luke says they were together. The NIV translates that they were together. The New King James says they were of one accord. They were of one mind. It means more than just they were all together in one place. It means that mentally, spiritually, emotionally, they were together in it. It was unified prayer. You didn't have everybody with their own little agendas praying for their own things, doing their own things. You didn't have that. You had the disciples of one mind and of one purpose, one in spirit, unified in what they were praying for, intent on one thing. That's the mind that Paul encouraged the Philippians to have when he said, make my joy complete and be of one mind, of one accord, having the same love for each other. It's unified prayer. They were together spiritually on this. And there was a unity amongst those early believers in their prayer life. Now second, it was continuous. It was continuous. They continually devoted themselves to prayer, Luke says. Not sporadic prayer. They didn't pray once a week. They didn't pray just in the midst of a crisis. They were continually devoting themselves to prayer. Daily, meeting with each other, and praying together. And let me ask you something. Does that describe your prayer life? Continuous, devoted to prayer? Or is your prayer life sporadic? And let me ask you, when you're faced with the decision that you have to make, and you're trying to discern the will of God, do you wait on Him in prayer? Prayer is usually the last thing we do. We evaluate our options. We call our friends and we take a consensus and we get everybody's opinion on the matter. What do you think I should do? Which one do you think I should marry? Where do you think I should go? What country do you think I should be a missionary in? Then we consult the Lord. But that's backwards. We need to wait on God first. And that's what they did. They came together and they were of one mind, continually devoting themselves to prayer before the Lord. Waiting on God. God, what should we do? Do you bathe your decisions before the Lord in prayer? Talk it over with Him and ask Him and lay out the options and discuss it with Him and tell Him what you're thinking and tell Him what you want and tell Him where you think you should go and ask Him about what His input is on it? You know, prayer is not about you and I trying to get God to do what we want Him to do or really to reveal to us His will. Prayer is about bringing ourselves into harmony with God's will so that we're thinking the same way that God is thinking on it. So that then when we make the decision, we make the right decision because we have waited on Him in prayer. And we have brought our will under His will. And we brought ourselves under submission to Him. So that when we do make the decision, we're thinking God's thoughts on the matter. And we make a right decision. They devoted themselves continually to prayer. The first thing that right decision making involves is that we wait on God in prayer. There's a second thing that it involves. And that is in verses 15 to 20. It involves consulting Scripture. Consulting Scripture. Now look what Peter does. Verse 15. At this time, Peter stood up in the midst of the brethren. A gathering of about 120 persons was there together. Now, that's probably not all the believers that existed at that time. There were some in Galilee. Remember, Jesus had appeared to over 500 at one time. But out of all of those who were believing in Him and had seen the risen Christ, there were 120 of them gathered in this upper room. A group just a little bit bigger than this. And Peter, who is the chief spokesman, stands up in the midst of them and he says, verse 16, Brethren, the Scripture had to be fulfilled which the Holy Spirit spoke by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was counted among us and he received his share in this ministry. 
Now, Peter indicates something. First of all, he indicates that the Scriptures had to be fulfilled. He is saying what God has spoken must come to pass. Uh, Peter is assuming that he knows what God has spoken concerning Judas. The second thing he indicates is not only that Scriptures must be fulfilled, it cannot be otherwise, because if God speaks, it will come to pass, it must come to pass, otherwise God's a liar. Scripture must be fulfilled. The second thing he indicates is that the Holy Spirit was speaking through David, listen, concerning Judas. Did you know that Judas was the subject of Old Testament prophecy? Did you know that? Did you know that Jeremiah and Zechariah both foretold the betrayal of Jesus to the high priests and the amount of money that Jesus would be betrayed for and what would be done with that money? But you know, Peter doesn't quote Zechariah. Peter doesn't quote Jeremiah. He quotes David. And he says that the Holy Spirit spoke through David concerning Judas. Judas. Judas is the subject of Old Testament prophecy. Now, what does he quote? Psalm 69 and Psalm 109. We're going to get to those in a second, but I want you to notice Luke's editorial comment in verse 18. He's quoting Peter in verses 16 and 17. Then he breaks away for a little bit because he's writing this to Theophilus, who was most likely a Roman official in Rome. Maybe Theophilus wasn't exactly sure of all of the details surrounding Judas because Luke doesn't mention them in his Gospel. So he breaks apart for a second. He sort of fills in a little bit about Judas that Theophilus needs to know. Verse 18, now this man, speaking of Judas, this man acquired a field with the price of his wickedness and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle and all his intestines gushed out. And it became known to all who were living in Jerusalem so that in their own language that field was called Hakal Damah, that is, the field of blood. Now, this is probably one of the most notorious apparent contradictions in all the New Testament. It's notorious. You know why it's notorious? Because Luke seems to, he appears to contradict Matthew not on one detail and not on two details, but on three different distinct details. First, there's the issue of how did Judas, Judas die? Matthew says he hung himself. Luke says that he fell headlong and he burst open in the middle and his intestines fell out. Second, there's the question of who bought the field. Matthew says that the priests bought the field with the money that Judas brought back to the temple. Judas was overcome with his remorse. He, he was not repentant, but he was remorseful. He didn't repent. But he brought the money back into the temple and he threw it down at the feet of the priests because he asked them to take it back, saying, I've betrayed innocent blood. And they, in their hypocritical self-righteousness, said, well, we can't legally take back blood money. right? We can betray innocent blood with it, but we can't take it back. I mean, if you're going to spend the money to betray an innocent man, you might as well take the money back and get something for it. But they couldn't do that. We're too righteous to take back blood money. So Judas throws it at their feet and they don't know what to do with it. They can't put it back in the temple treasury, so they use it to buy a field. That's what Matthew says. But look what Luke says. Now this man, Judas, acquired a field. The question is, was it the priest who bought the field or was it Judas who acquired the field? And then the third thing is, why is it called a field of blood? Matthew says it was called the field of blood because it was purchased with blood money. Luke says it was called the field of blood because Judas spilled his guts on it. That's what he did. So, how do we reconcile those? Let's deal with the easiest one first. Why is it called the field of blood? Was it because Judas it was bought with blood money? Or was it because Judas 
spilled out his intestines in the field. Why was it called the field of blood? The answer is both. Matthew tells us one reason why some people called it the field of blood, because it was purchased with blood money. Luke gives us another reason why others called it the field of blood, because Luke spilled his guts there. It was called the field of blood for both reasons, and both of them are right. There were people who called it the field of blood in that language because that's where Judas had burst open in the middle. There were others who called it the field of blood because it was bought with blood money. So that's really no contradiction when you look at it. The second question, who purchased the field? Was it the priest or was it Judas? The answer to that question, both. It was the priest who bought the field, but they used Judas's money. Luke says, what did Judas acquire for the price of his wickedness? A field. Now really, it wasn't Judas who bought it, but it was Judas who acquired it. It was his money that somebody else used to purchase the field. So what did Judas get for his money? A field. He was dead, but that's what he got for the price of his wickedness. He just got a field. Now it was the priest who actually did the purchase, but it was Judas's money and thus really Judas's field that he died in. Now the third question is, how did Judas die? Was he hung? Did he hang himself, as Matthew indicates? Or did he fall headlong and burst open in the middle and all of his intestines gush out? And I'm not trying to ruin your lunch with all of this, by the way. The answer to the question is what? Both. You see, these accounts aren't contradictory. They're complementary. Luke is giving us details that Matthew, for whatever reason, leaves out. And Matthew gives us some details that Luke doesn't care to mention. Both. We know that Luke hung, or we know that Judas hung himself. Now, his falling headlong probably resulted from being suspended. You have to suspend somebody in order for them to fall. So there's all kinds of ways that this could have played out. Luke, uh, Judas could have hung himself over a cliff. And his body could have hung there for some time, the tree or the branch or the rope breaking and him falling off the edge of the cliff, hitting some rocks, bursting open in the middle and his intestines gushing out. Or it could be that Luke records Judas hung himself and after some time the body begins to bloat and he's found by someone, and somebody doesn't want to touch him, so they cut him down, and he falls down and hits something sharp, and he bursts open in the middle, and his guts come out. Now, any of those possibilities could be true, but they're complementary. What do we know? We know that he hung himself, and that that hanging resulted in him falling headlong and bursting open in the middle, and his guts coming out. So that's Luke's editorial comment. A lot of really good information that maybe you didn't want to have before lunch, But let's move on to watch Peter consult the Scriptures. He says, first of all, back up in verse 16, Brethren, the Scripture had to be fulfilled. You see, that's why we had to take two weeks to do this. It had to take two Sundays to do this, because we had to go over Judas's (laughs) spilling his guts in the field. And that's an important detail. Verse 16, Scripture had to be fulfilled because it was spoken by the Holy Spirit through David concerning Judas. Now, what does Peter choose to quote? He quotes two different Psalms. Look at verse 20. It is written in the book of Psalms, First, let his homestead be made desolate and let no one dwell in it. That is a quotation from Psalm 69, verse 2. And then Peter quotes Psalm 109, verse 25. Sorry, 69, verse 25 and Psalm 109, verse 8. The second quotation from Psalm 109, verse 8, let another man take his office. Now you read those quotations and you ask yourself, what in the world do those quotations have to do with the situation that they're in and the replacement of Judas? It's a good question. Some people read that and they say, oh, Peter's just quoting Scripture out of context. He's taking these Old Testament texts and he's twisting them and distorting them. This is just the product of a darkened mind. He doesn't understand the Scriptures. And so he makes a huge mistake here. Not so. 
If we had the time to go back and read Psalm 69 and read Psalm 109, you'd see that Peter's exegesis of those psalms is flawless. He's right on the money. Both psalms speak of Judas and Judas' betrayal of Christ. And Peter is right in saying another man needs to take his office because that's what the Scriptures have revealed. Psalm 69 is a messianic psalm. It's a messianic psalm. Other than Psalm 22, it is the most quoted psalm in all of the New Testament. It's the second most quoted psalm in all of the New Testament. Let me give you some examples of verses that you find in Psalm 69. Psalm 69 verse 4 says, Those who hate me without a cause are more than the hairs of my head. Does that sound familiar? Yeah, Jesus quoted that of Himself. He said, There are those who hate me without cause. Psalm 69 verse 9, Zeal for thy house has eaten me up. That's John chapter 2, after Jesus cleansed the temple. John quotes it about Jesus' motive for cleansing the temple. Zeal for thy house has eaten me up. Psalm 69, verse 21, They gave me gall for my food, and for my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. Does that sound familiar? It's a crucifixion scene. So what's David talking about? David himself is talking about his own situation. And in a very poetical manner, he is describing that some who have been very close to him Some who have eaten bread with him, some of his friends, people he has shown love to, have risen up against him as his enemies. And now they're hurling abuses at him, they're betraying him, they're lying about him, they're slandering him, and they're causing him a tremendous amount of suffering. And so he writes Psalm 69, and it is his prayer to God. God, I need you to vindicate me, because my enemies are many, and those who hate me, hate me without cause. And so he prays in that same psalm, verse 22 and 25, May their table become a snare, and when they are in peace, may it become a trap. May their eyes grow dim so that they cannot see, and make their loins shake continually. Pour out your indignation on them, and may your burning anger overtake them. And this is the verse that Peter quotes, May their camp be desolate, and may none dwell in their tents. What's David saying? God, let them perish. Let them perish. Let their peace be a trap. May their eyes grow dim. May they be in terror constantly. May their tents be desolate so that nobody dwells at their dwelling place. Take care of them. Deal with them as only you can deal with them. Now David's describing his own situation and the people who were causing him that suffering. But Peter knows that the Holy Spirit is speaking through David, not just of David's situation, but actually of one of David's descendants, namely Christ. And that the Spirit of God is revealing that those who, those who were betraying David and causing him suffering, really, prophetically, it's speaking of Judas because he was going to betray Christ and cause him suffering. And so David prays, Lord, may their tent become desolate. Did that happen with Judas? He hung himself. Did anybody live in his tent after that? Not Judas. But Peter said Scripture had to be fulfilled because the Spirit spoke concerning Judas. May his tent be desolate. May his homestead be vacant. And he died. And he perished. And it came to pass just as David had prayed. So Peter understands that although David is speaking of his situation, really it's not him, it's prophetically one of his descendants, and although Peter, David is describing his own betrayers and his own friends who have turned against him, Peter understands the Holy Spirit really is speaking about Judas 
who would eventually betray Christ. And the ultimate fulfillment of that psalm is in the Lord Jesus and the fact that he was portrayed by his close friend, Judas. Then Peter quotes another psalm, Psalm 109, and that's verse 8. Psalm 109 is a messianic psalm written by David. One of the clearest messianic references in the psalm, David says, I have become a reproach to them, and when they see me, they wag their head. That sound familiar? It's a crucifixion scene. Matthew records that as they passed by, they hurled abuse at him and wagged their heads at him. Despised him. That's what David was at. My close friends. They've come up against me. They despise me. They hurl abuse at me. And so once again, David is describing his own situation, and he's praying to the Lord for God to vindicate him by judging his enemies. And listen to what David prays. David says, For they have opened the wicked and deceitful mouth against me. They have spoken against me with a lying tongue. They have surrounded me with words of hatred, and they fought against me without cause. In return for my love, they act as my accusers, but I am in prayer. David says, They have repaid me evil for good and hatred for my love. It's exactly what Judas did to Christ. Repaid him evil for good and hatred for his love. And Jesus didn't do anything to Judas to deserve that kind of treatment. David says, I haven't done anything to my enemies. I've showered love on these people. They were close to me and now they've betrayed me. And so then he prays for God to judge him. Appoint a wicked man over him, verse 6. Let an accuser stand at his right hand. When he's judged, let him come forth guilty. And let his prayer become sin. Let his days be few and let another take his office. That's what David prays. God, remove this individual from this position however you do it, and let somebody else fill his position. Now Peter understands that David's speaking of his own situation and of those who were around him who betrayed him and caused him suffering. But Peter also understands that prophetically, the Spirit of God is using David to speak not of himself only, but of the Lord Jesus and of Judas who was close to him, who betrayed him and caused him that suffering. And David says, let another take his office. Now what's Peter indicating? Peter's just simply saying Scripture has to be fulfilled. Judas has died according to Scripture. His office must be filled, just as the psalmist said. Peter is a good literalist. He interprets Scripture just literally as it is written. And Peter understands the Scripture must be fulfilled. So we have to replace Judas. And so they put forward these two men. Now the principle is this. Not only do we wait on God in prayer before we make a decision, but the second thing is that we consult Scripture. We consult Scripture. We go to the Word and we ask the Lord, what does it say in your Word concerning my situation? What principles are there? What lessons are there? What commands exist that I can look at and obey and apply to my situation that might give me some understanding as to what my path should be? Do you do that? Do you consult Scripture? Let me tell you something, my friends, it requires that you know this book. You say, well, the book doesn't tell me anything about whether I should marry Sue or whether I should marry Mary. No, but it tells you all kinds of stuff in here that you can apply to that decision. Do you or do you not believe that everything you need for life and godliness is contained within the pages of this book? You either believe that or you don't. If you believe it, I don't need any revelation. I don't need any prophet. I don't need any word of knowledge. I don't need Pat Robertson. I don't need anything else but this book. This book is either sufficient or it is insufficient. It's either sufficient or it's deficient and defective. 
Now, if I believe that everything I need for life and godliness is contained within the pages of this book, guess what I'm going to do? I'm going to read it, I'm going to study it, I'm going to memorize it, I'm going to obey it. And do everything I can to keep myself within the revealed will of God. Now, God, should I marry Mary or should I marry Sue? You can search this book all day long. And it's not going to give you the answer to that question. But it will give me the answer to this question. What should my potential wife be like? She should be a believer. She should be obedient to the Word. We should be of like mind on these different things. We should uh, uh, have the same philosophy regarding child rearing. We should be of, of like spirit, united in spirit. Um, is she obedient? Now, all of those things are up there first. And after that, there's the question of, am I attracted to her? And if I'm not drawn to her, if I'm not attracted to her, don't marry her. Don't be stupid. Detracted to her or not, that's foolishness to marry somebody that you're not attracted to. So you don't do that. And now if you're within the revealed will of God in all of those decisions, pick the one that you like the best. Now let's be honest. Most men are not confronted with the decision to marry two women, right? Most men are lucky to find one woman who wants to marry them. I know that there are those occasions when they have more than one woman. I know that there is that rare time when there's more than one woman who wants to marry one man. But those are hypothetical situations. I mean, I know that the sun stood still and the Red Sea was parted. Those things don't happen very often, friends. Most men are lucky to find one woman who wants to marry them. But hypothetically speaking, just delve delve into your imagination for me for a second. Hypothetically speaking, if you have a choice between two equally good things and you're within the revealed will of God and everything that Scripture tells you to do, you're doing then you choose the one you like the best. Basically it. You choose the choice that you like the best. If you're saved, if you're sanctified, if you're serving the Lord, if you're walking in obedience to His Word and you have a choice, then you've bathed it in prayer and you've consulted Scripture on the subject, then make a decision. Lord, should I cheat on my taxes? Do I need to pray about that? What's the Scripture say? It's obvious. I don't need to pray about that decision. Lord, should I divorce my wife and marry my neighbor? I don't need to pray about that decision. Those are revealed in Scripture. You and I keep ourselves in the revealed will of God. And friends, you'll find your life is just being directed in the course of God's will as you're obeying the what is revealed in Scripture. Now, it may be that after bathing something in prayer and waiting on God in prayer and after consulting the Scriptures to see what they see and being obedient to them, you still have a choice between two very equally good things. And you still cannot decide between the two. What do I do? You apply principle number three, which is next week. So come back next week. We'll see what Peter does. And we'll look at the next two principles. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank You for Your Word. Without it, we would be utterly lost in every situation. Without it, we would not know sin, we would not know righteousness, and we could not know You. And we thank You that You call to us to consult You in prayer and to to bathe situations and to wait on You in prayer. And I pray that You would help us to learn to wait and to hear You speak to us through Your Word as we are listening and obedient to it. And we ask, Father, that You would make us a people who breathe prayer and a people whose blood flows bibline so that our veins course with the Scriptures. And that we're living people of Your Word and of a living, breathing communion with You. And then we will find that You are orchestrating the events of our life and everything is unfolding according to Your plan for us. 
Thank you for what you have taught us thus far in this text. And we ask, God, that you would allow us to apply even these two principles this week to some of the decisions that we need to make in consulting the Scriptures and in waiting on you in prayer. Help us to wait on you and then to find our strength renewed. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.